Any investor that says that they've never made a mistake is either lying or they haven't done enough things. A good place to start is with a finance broker to know what your borrowing capacity is and do you need someone like myself to help you with a strategic portfolio plan if you're intending to go beyond just one purchase and actually put a portfolio together in the most optimum way to get to your goals. Welcome to Perth Property Insider where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management, sales and buyers agency servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here's your host, Jared Mann. G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm bringing you a Q&A episode where we're deep diving into some of the interesting questions getting asked on the Perth Property Investment Facebook group. If you're not already a member, make sure you head on over to Facebook, search us out and join in the lively commentary. And if you've got any questions, you can post them on there. In the meantime, there's plenty of people that will help out. It's always good to get your opinions to help others. Now, what are some of the things we're covering today? We're going into, should I buy now or later? What's the difference between a fixed versus a periodic tenancy? Title insurance, is it worth having? Good, some good areas to buy, are these them? And how to start out in the beginning? Where's the good first places to start? How do you set a budget for a property that you're going to invest in? And is it important for a property to be subdividable? All right, so let's get stuck into it, shall we? Let's go inside. Now, first question off the rank, we've got someone asking here, you know, that they're debating in their head, should they invest now and pay a slight or more than slight premium or wait for this madness to end and get better bang for buck? Now, this is that age-old timing debate of do you buy when the market is hot or do you hope and pray that once the market's gone up, hit its peak, that it's going to come off and decrease to being further than where the prices might be at now. And I always think it's best to buy when you actually can, because when you're executing a plan and investing over the longer term, it's shown that the precise timing of when you buy is nowhere near as important as the quality of property that you buy. And I think, you know, depending on the specific suburb that you're looking in, most suburbs are going to have at least 12 to 18 months, possibly 24 months more of growth ahead. And if that represented at least 10, 20% in growth, the market's going to go up a lot more before it stabilizes. And then even if there's some pullback by 5%, maximum 10%, I think you know, in the worst of times we've seen. And if you choose your suburb and your property type well, it should hold its value and may even keep increasing when uh, slightly when things cool off and it'll sustain its price. So I've never really seen it work out for people when they sit, hope and pray that prices are going to end up lower. And in this instance, I just can't see it happening for the majority of suburbs in Perth. That's not to say that you come in and want to pay a crazy price or a you know an over-the-top emotional price. 
you don't want to win in the negotiation but lose in the price you pay. And that's why it can really help having someone like us as a buyer's agent on your side to know what's worth paying the extra for, what you should be walking away from and how to compete and win over others so that you get into the market sooner rather than, you know, if you wait six months, 12 months at this point in time, I'm seeing suburbs go up by as much as 10% in a couple of months. So you can really cost yourself by not getting in and securing that property now. So hopefully uh, that's given you some perspective and you can secure something good for yourself soon. Next question. Should I let my tenancy roll over to a periodic agreement or stick to fixed term agreements? Now, there's a number of considerations here. And with us being a property manager looking after 950-odd properties, you know, we've thought about this really deeply and, and understand some of the pros and cons. And we always try to keep our tenants on a fixed term. The reason for that is that on a periodic agreement, a tenant can decide to move out and just give three weeks notice at any point in time. That can be the most convenient time of the year. They, they give you your notice on the first or second week of December. You then end up having vacancy for two or three weeks across Christmas while you look to find someone. We write all of our fixed-term tenancies to expire in either November or the second week of January onwards, so that we don't expire in that critical period. And yeah, the market might be a little bit hot and to trot now, but when things get quieter, uh, you don't want to have that periodic tenancy getting ended on the tenant's choice at an inconvenient time. So that's one factor to consider. The other thing is that a lot of insurance don't cover on a periodic tenancy agreement. And I think that's to do with the security that it brings around that certainty of rent. And for whatever reason, the insurers always prefer and want, at least the majority of them do, a fixed term tenancy to be in place. So you don't want to find out after the fact that, oh, you know, you're the tenant has ended up leaving quickly. They've left damage and or uh, cleaning or other things, rent owing that's over and above the bond. And for whatever reason, your insurance isn't covering because it's on periodic tenancy. So definitely check into that if it's something that you are considering. Other benefits of the fixed term is just certainty that you've got that tenancy in place. You can just set and forget it and you can still have reasonable flexibility when you've when you're working with fixed terms. So I always say never sign up for a lease longer than a year. Every time we have a landlord that goes with a two year or three year agreement and insists on it, we warn them, please don't go signing this. There's no major reason to. You know, the market's strong. We're not going to have issues finding a tenant if they vacate you know let's go with the shorter term to give you more flexibility if your situation does change or you want you need to sell or you want to move back in for whatever reason every time someone signs a long lease period they're always the one that has the situation change and they want to get into the property sooner and of course a tenancy agreement stands regardless of any sale so that's going to really 
prevent home buyers from wanting to look at buying it because they won't be able to move in if the if the tenancy stands. So if you're coming to that pointy end where you're thinking of selling so that you can have a good mix between certainty of the tenancy not having it end at a, a inconvenient time and also having some flexibility so that we can keep an eye on the market and keep an eye on how that the the market's progressing in your specific suburb and choose our timing appropriately what we normally suggest is signing up for a six month period at a time then we review it two months out two to three months out from the end of that six months decide you know what's the outlook you know looking like are we going to sell now do or do we give them another six month period and revisit and check again and that's what we're doing with a lot of clients at the moment as we keep that watchful eye and try to choose the most appropriate time now we can never choose the top of the market perfectly but there's going to usually be enough warning signs that things are coming off and six months is enough of a window to hopefully see those signs and whereas I feel at the moment, a 12-month lease, if you're looking to get out, 12 months, a lot can change in, in the market and the, at the moment, and it is hard to see that far ahead. So I can understand people wanting to be on periodic for those reasons of flexibility, but why not consider the six-month term instead of the typical 12? So hopefully that answers some of the variables of your tenancy type there. I'm sure if I chatted to my managers, they might be able to tell me a few other reasons to do or not do either of those. So if if it is coming up to it, feel free to chat to our team if they and if we're looking after your property and, and they might have some other reasons to suggest. Next question. Hi all, quick question. Is title insurance something worth getting? Being a one-off payment at settlement, it's not too expensive and I'm leaning towards a yes. Now, there's many things that title insurance covers that I probably can't even begin to summarise for you here. It's worth checking out the brochure and seeing you know, every single thing that it covers and weighing up for yourself whether it's a risk on your potential property. It's things like, you know, are the boundary fences in the right locations? Are some of the out uh, buildings or extensions or other things, are they approved? If they're not approved, it, it covers you finding that out later. And, and take the case this week, my wife is a settlement agent. She was just telling me that, oh no, it wasn't my wife, it was our head of department. She was telling me that one of our clients has just bought a property themselves and they're really worried because the granny flat on the property they've since learned is not council approved it was not disclosed to them at the time of buying and they had some letters in the mail from the council after the fact writing to the owner about the granny flat so it appears that the sellers may have been aware of it that's another story and they're at least looking now to make a claim on their title insurance and it may very well be covered and it's a a good first layer of protection against these kind of things coming up as a surprise and obviously it doesn't take the place of the due diligence that you can hopefully do when you're purchasing to uncover some of these hidden things but I see the case for it more so the older that the property is so when you're, you're dealing with the purchase of a much older property you know there wasn't 
as good uh, practices in place, you're more inclined to have these uh, non-approved structures or parts to the house. You're more likely to potentially have a fence line in the wrong place that could be challenged. And I'm sure title insurance covers a lot of other things that are more likely to arise with these older types of dwellings. So definitely check out the specific things that the insurance covers and consider whether they're likely and I'd for your type of property. And I'd suggest more so if you're buying newer property that isn't likely to have as many of these risks, it often the title insurance isn't scaled or set based on these specific things. It's it's often just based on your purchase price. So arguably those risks might not be anywhere near as great and not worth while as much for you to take it out. But do get uh, proper advice when assessing that. And these are just my general comments and I'm certainly not an insurance broker. So just my general view only. Now, next question. Hi all. I'm looking for an investment property with a budget of 550. Is Beldivis a good suburb to invest? My research says it's a good time to invest in the south of Perth. And I'm going to couple this with another question that was asked as well here, where we say, hey, we're not Perth locals, but looking to buy an investment property. Considering Alkamos and Yanship, welcome your thoughts on the demand, growth potential, and any other things that you may like to point out. Thanks in advance. Now, when I actually put these three suburbs, Beldivis, Alkamos, and Yanchip, all in a similar boat. And that boat is the boat of land supply. All you need to do is pull up an aerial map and you will see how much land supply there is still to come on in these areas. It could be a, you know, five to 10 years or more worth. It's really not as far as I'm concerned, worth even looking into the master plans and working out how many, how much there is because there's a lot. And from my experience in the past of what I've seen when the market, you know, goes quiet, those areas got hurt the hardest and the most because the land supply all of a sudden far exceeded the demand in the areas and being so far from Perth, they were not as favoured and with the supply significantly exceeding the demand, you could, almost couldn't give away houses in those areas. Fast forward to today and we've had a lot of the land soaked up with the building grants previously back in 2020-2021 and the cost of building's gone up a, a lot. So that's causing, caused a lot of pressure on established properties in those areas it soaked up the supply that we had people are looking to newer more affordable properties and you know Alcamos is it certainly got some positives to it the freeway's been extended train line has been extended um, it's coastal it's on the beach and it is still relatively affordable but for me the biggest one of the biggest factors that influence price growth potential and that's why we're investing, we're not just investing for the cash flow along the way because the cash flow is not going to make you rich. And it wasn't just uh, house prices that dropped in these areas when the market fell significantly, it was the rental prices too. So a lot of people were underwater with equity, struggling to hold their properties because the rents had dropped by so much. And because there was a large number of investors in these areas, there was a lot of supply of other rentals when the demand was low 
in those those difficult times too. So just have how I've seen how volatile they can be and because of that supply going to continue to exceed demand, I'd really suggest that you look at a more established suburb that might not have as shinier, newer houses in, but when you buy an established area, you're going to be far more likely to get the demand exceeding supply longer term and you know, you're going to benefit from stronger growth. So I hope that helps. Now, where are we up to? Hi, all. I just joined the group and looking for your thoughts. As someone who is new to property market and investing, I've been listening to some podcasts, hopefully this one, and looking on real estate pages to see what looks like a good buy and try to learn what I can before jumping into anything. I currently have my own home, primary place residence, and thought it would be smart to consider using the equity to buy an investment property. Any suggestions on the next steps? Who I should speak to? A financial advisor, accountant, or just go straight to a real estate agent, etc. What to consider and what to look out for when starting out? Any advice would be much appreciated. Now, when I think back to the times when I got started over 20 years ago, making me sound old um, now, but back in those days, there was the Summersoft Investment Forum, there was Australian Property Investor Magazine, a few other magazines. There was very few, if any, real estate books. There was obviously Think and Grow Rich and Rich Dad Poor Dad and a few Australian authors, but very little. And there was certainly not the information overload that there is now out there. And you'd think, well, in the age of information, surely everything's available to help us and get us started. But the trouble is that there's so much information now that it, it is hard to know what do you focus on, you know, how do you set a strategy and a plan for yourself who do you listen to? A lot of confusing and different messages out there. So I certainly like to think that I'm big on giving people education so they can get up to the point of making their own decisions to steer their own investing journey. But you certainly can't you know, do it all by yourself, certainly not without making a lot of mistakes to learn from along the way and go through those learning cycles and look any investor that says that they've never made a mistake is either lying or they haven't done enough things to trip up on something but you're far better off learning from other people's mistakes and I can shortcut process for people so that you know hopefully I'm preventing you from making those same ones and it is also difficult when you start to look at the team that you build so when you look at speaking to a financial advisor or a financial planner, they very often only understand, you know, shares or index funds they and insurance. Very rarely do they understand property. There's very few out there that do. And if they do have significant expertise, because there's so few in the industry now, there's very few. Those that do have the expertise often work with high net wealth clients only. So it's very difficult to find someone that has the expertise and be able to afford paying them and same goes with a lot of accountants and it can be difficult to find one that understands property we've had if you go back and look at um, our interview with ash ramdus of aventum group he's an accountant that certainly understands and he's 
you know, open enough to working with people at all levels of their journey, but I don't think that should necessarily be your starting point. It can be worth speaking to them to get your structure understood, but if you're just a PAYG and you, it's best to just probably keep things simple and look to purchase in single or joint names, by all means do get an accountant's input on that. I think a good place to start is with a finance broker to know what your borrowing capacity is. And then you need to start giving thought to your actual strategy and do you need someone like myself to help you with a strategic portfolio plan if you're intending to go beyond just one purchase and actually put a portfolio together in the most optimum way to get to your goals and your destination, then I would be putting this plan in place far sooner, even before you buy your first property. In my view, everyone should have one because when you understand what's needed to reach your goals, you'll understand that you do really need to be buying much more than one property or you 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 can have very limited options and not create the wealth that you're going to need to go anywhere near towards replacing your income or giving you you know the equity that you need so everyone really does need a portfolio it needs a plan for it so you say if you come and speak to us and we we go down the road of creating you a strategic plan we're going to involve a finance broker who understands property as an expert when and if you need to speak to an accountant we can make the introductions and then when it comes to the actual execution piece we do have our do-it-yourself buyers info packs to guide people on the suburbs. We've got our buyers agency that is, you know, very evidence-based and can help you maximise your returns and prevent all those mistakes that you make. And then, of course, we've got our property management, who an absolute team of award-winning experts that are going to be able to improve your returns and prevent your stress along the way. And I've seen so many people end up selling their properties within five years because their tenants have caused them too much stress so getting that team together is really crucial and it is hard to just pull them together piecemeal and you know you go through a i think a lot of the mistakes i made was the trial and error just on the team that i was using and surrounding myself with so we can really shortcut a lot of that and uh, feel free to get in touch if you're in that starting out position and you know worried about whether we could or couldn't help we can certainly let you know whether we might be the right fit and you can see whether for yourself whether you feel it is too next question hi all just after others thoughts looking at units in perth as a principal place of residence i like the idea of a house but working away so not really practical for that you know fly and fly out lock lock and leave lifestyle and I should add that I live on my own. I guess the question is, do I do others live in strata units and buy houses as investments or am I better off rent vesting? Now, I wanted to throw this in because I did do an episode a few episodes back on buying strata properties and where it can suit people for lifestyle reasons and also potentially investment if their budget is more limited. And... When you look at buying a strata property, a lot of types of properties are thrown into that one basket. We've got, when we say strata, you know, you know, we've got high density apartments, we've got units, we've got villas, we've got townhouses, we've got, you know, even when we look at units, there's ones in large blocks, there's ones that are single level that are, might be adjoining, might be separate. The villas can be in small or large groups and likewise with your townhouses. So 
we can't just lump them all in the one basket. Obviously, the higher the land component, the smaller the group, and the lower the strata fees, generally speaking, is going to be best. And uh, I'd suggest you to, if you do have the budget for a house, it could be worth looking at potentially having some roommates if you're not there all the time. That can help with cash flow and having someone around to keep an eye on things. Houses can be set up just as well for a lock and leave lifestyle as well. You get your roller shutters on, you get you buy something with a garage so your car's secure and you get something low maintenance that has retic and you know set up so that you're not getting lots of stuff in your gardens. So I would explore whether the home the the, the right type of house could still suit you and potentially getting some roommates but if you really enjoy your own space and just want to keep it simple and minimalist in deciding whether to rent best I certainly did it and had four properties by the time that I moved out of home even and then I rented for you know quite a number of years with my partner until we built our home for the first time we only really just started thinking of building when we got more serious about potentially having kids and got sick of moving around with our leases being uh, ended and owners wanting to either sell or move in. So those are the downsides of that rent vesting lifestyle. You might not have the security oh, that you can have with owning your own home. No one's going to tell you to get out of your own home. The only person that would do that would be the bank if you don't make your repayments. But short on that, you can have a, a lot more sort of security and not have to worry about your tenancies ending and you having to move and stuff. But I think if you really want to live in that higher density type unit or apartment, I definitely wouldn't be buying it. I would be renting it if that's where you want to live. You look at it as a bit of a chapter. Your needs are going to potentially change as well. I'm not sure how old you are, but you know, if you meet a partner or your goals and other things change, you might be wanting to upgrade. And I think uh, the apartment or high, the high-density apartment or unit is probably going to hold you back and be not the greatest use of your money. So hopefully that helps and gives you some other angles on that co- the, the different considerations of each. Next question. Hi everyone, when, oh no, we've already done that one, that was asking about Alchemos and Yanchips, so on to the next one. An acquaintance is buying his first property, he asked, what should his budget be? I actually had no idea. Asking around a rule of thumb, the elders used was that it should be no more than four times your annual income. Does that still hold true nowadays? And if so, I have overspent on mine as it was 565 and I make less than that. And on an 85% loan. He is 30 and makes 250k per annum. So he should not be spending more than a million? Question mark. Now, this is really goes to show the type of advice that you tend to get when you ask your friends or you ask people at a dinner party. And it's very interesting. So the kind of borrowing limits that you can get from the bank is typically somewhere between five and eight times your annual income, and those incomes would in- include any investment properties and in- factor in different levels of how those are counted. But generally, six times is sort of a safe sort of overall income assumption to, to look at. And 
it's really going to come down to your property, your investment property sits and someone who's got a 250k income, you really then need to look deeper at what's their expenses, what's their actual capacity to save each month. And that's going to really determine the type of property that they can afford and actual actually have the ability to fund any shortfall of or, you know, if they've got 250k of uh, income but their expenses are 230 including tax per year, then their options are going to be a lot more limited than if they live a pretty frugal lifestyle and they're spending 60k per year and plus tax and leaving, you know, 100 to 130 for uh, investment. So you can see that the person's ability to save and invest is going to make a big difference to the type of property that they can afford to get into and afford to hold. And the other factors that come into this, they've mentioned his age, so he's got a lot of time ahead. And I would also be looking at, okay, well, what's his goals? You know, what level of passive income and actual equity base or, or overall wealth level equity in his properties is he trying to get to and by what age and then you can actually start to look at and and this is what we do when we create a strategic portfolio plan we can actually start to look at what are the, the types of property purchases that he can make where does those properties sit on the spectrum between rental yield and growth and we also don't want to take out his ability to save and save deposits for the next properties too. So you've got to look at, you know, where is he left at after he's made these purchases, purchase and then subsequent purchases. The other thing to factor into this is if he's wanting to do a home upgrade or make that home purchase, if he's rent vesting at the moment or living at home with his parents, then you've got to factor in and work towards that principal place of residence purchase at some point. You don't want to get to that time and not have a plan and not just suddenly work out you don't have any borrowing capacity for it. If the plan was to grow your investments first and then sell all or part of them to, to do that, then that it's good to have an actual plan to do that rather than just you know working out you have to do it later. So a lot of factors go into deciding what budget to have and that's why it's so limiting to just get advice on these basic rules of thumbs that people share at barbecues and why you need to go a lot deeper to creating an actual strategic plan I think and even if you don't uh, get our services in doing it then hopefully those questions that I've just asked can help you think through and work out what sort of budget's going to fit for you and, and the type of property that that's going to allow you to get into so next question how important is it for an investment property to be subdividable now i wanted to chuck this in because a lot of people go around as an investor and chase a subdividable property and they trade off everything including its location and desirability overall to end up with it being subdividable now what is the benefit of having a property being subdividable? It gives you options in the future to either demolish the house or subdivide off the rear or the side. You might be able to retain the house doing so, or you may have to demolish it. You can convert 
you know, you could either sell part of it or you could build on it to create a much higher income producing property on there. So if you improve the property and you say built three villas or you built a townhouse or you knocked it down and built two, you know, you're going to be able to get a lot higher income return from that much newer property because you're going to have a much higher building component on there. And that can really fit with an overall strategy when you start moving towards the income phase or if you want to have a higher income along the way than holding uh, properties that are more growth focused. So can tilt you more towards income as you go. So in my portfolio, I've opted to purchasing quite a number of properties that have that development potential. I haven't got a clear idea of when I'm going to develop it. It just gives me the choices to. And because a subdividable property ultimately has a higher land component, I prefer to be buying those types of properties because buildings depreciate land, appreciates and increases over time. And that fits with my sort of overall strategy of being more growth focused, but I haven't compromised the location at all. And I've purchased a property overall that's going to be desirable still to rent it out. And the location is still desirable when and if I develop it. Now, the last thing you want to do is purchase a subdividable property and have it on a main busy road. And then, you know, even once it's subdivided, that location is going to be inferior and always perform subpar to others that are going to be more desirable to both renters and for potential resale when you get to it. So the other thing when it comes to purchasing a property the subdividable has development potential, you want to make sure that you're not overpaying for that potential. So many people get overly excited when something has a higher R coding, but they don't realise that the house isn't retainable and they've basically paid the same as what a retainable house would be that can be kept. So you need to look deeper. You need to see what can be done with it. You need to check if, if you're paying for that extra potential, you, you're better off checking what can and can't be done with the council. And if it's a split coding, is there any special conditions under that higher coding to develop? Is there any public open space contributions in the area or special levies or you know other things that are, exist in many councils in certain areas that are going to make it completely unprofitable to develop when you get to that point, not even worth while doing because those you know, headworks costs or public open space contributions or other things needed, you know, certain spots you have to build to two stories and you can't do single story on need a certain larger lot sizes to make it subdividable. So there's a lot there to consider for the uninformed and it's very easy when you don't know what you're doing to overpay for a property because of its subdivisional development potential, but then realize later that the potential is not as real or it's certainly not as profitable to take forward and do. And what I'm finding at the moment with a lot of these types of properties is because the cost of building's gone up so much and established prices of established properties are still so undervalued, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find a site that stacks up for profit. We did have Anton Flynn from Flynn Subdivision Experts on the show 
in the last episode, and he'd be a great person to speak to about getting a fee, you know an initial feasibility done. He can point you in the right direction of what's possible, even if it's not profitable now. At least know what can and can't be done with property. And I think it's a it's great to have uh, subdividable properties in your portfolio, providing you don't compromise everything else, and especially the location and its overall desirability in doing so, just to get that subdivision potential. So hopefully all these questions have been of interest and there's something that has helped you. Would really appreciate you sharing it. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could post us a quick review on Spotify or iTunes. Just help other people find the show. Thanks for tuning in and catch you on the next one. Just a reminder, the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature. As we don't know your specific situation, you should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburb of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorshedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group. To be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions, and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group.